This morning we continue in the book of Hebrews. Uh, I'm going to look at this morning the rest of chapter 1. There are seven Old Testament quotes in these last verses from 5 to 14. And believe me, it's tempting to, uh, to expound deeply on each one of them. But I don't think that would serve the purpose of helping us understand what the writer is doing here. <clears throat> he marshals all these texts as a way to uh, strengthen the argument that he's made in the first four verses. And so that's what I want, uh, I want us to focus on here this morning. So Hebrews uh, chapter 1 is before us, verses 5 to 14. Uh, let me read this for us. As always, this is God's very living word. The writer has just asserted that God has spoken through his Son, who is superior to everything, including angels, and then continues in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. But like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So ends God's, the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. As we come before it this morning, let me pray for us once again. Father in heaven, as always, we ask your blessing as we come before your word and ask you to speak to us through it this morning. And fulfill your own promise that it goes out and does not return to you empty, but instead accomplishes all that you purpose for it and is successful in all for which you send it. We pray for ourselves that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us this morning, that you would open our eyes and ears to see and hear what you would have us see and hear from your word this morning. And in doing that, that you would make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We do desire to walk according to what it teaches us. And we ask all of this, as always, in the precious and wonderful name, like no other, of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, if you had a good father growing up, um, you may, like many of us, remember some of the sayings that your dad would repeat from time to time. Many of us remember favorite sayings of our fathers. 
One of the ones that I remember from my dad, when I would start complaining about something, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that, blah, blah, blah. His standard response was always, and it still is to this day, well, it's better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. Now, I know what he meant that to mean. Don't think what you're going through is as bad as you think it is. What it really did to me was say, man, a poke in the eye with a sharp stick must really be terrible, because what I'm going through now stinks. Um, not sure it had quite the effect he intended. Technically true, but didn't always help. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, from those kinds of sayings, my dad did have some wise things to say, and I'm thankful for that. One of the ones that I'm continually reminded of is one of the things that he, he said about the way God works in our lives. Because we can get impatient with God. We ask him for things. We want an answer. We want him to work. We're looking for a job, and we want that job now. We're, we're looking for an answer to a, a, a reconciliation, maybe, in a relationship, and we want it now. Uh, there's some future issue that's uncertain, and we want to know now. Uh, we're, we're very impatient with God and, and want that answer, want that action, <clears throat> usually sooner and, and with more clarity than, than we're getting. And my dad used to, to remind us, and I thought it was a great, simple little pithy saying. He would say that, God is never late. He is very seldom early, (laughs) but he is always on time. And that stuck with me because now that I'm older, I have seen the truth of that over and over and over again in my life. Um, Never late. God is never late. And when you see how he acts, the timing is always perfect. may not be what we we would have wanted or expected, uh, but the timing is always perfect. God is there when you need him, uh, when you really need him, not when you think you need him. So you have different things that our dads pass on to us, some good advice, some not-so-helpful advice. Um, on the not-so-helpful side, I'm reminded of that, that old TV series, uh, uh, Maverick, uh, and the movie that was made in 94 about it. But Brett and Bart Maverick loved quoting their pappy the advice that Pappy gave them. Um, Well, as old Pappy used to say, work is fine for killing time, but it's a shaky way to make a living. And now, if you know the series, if you know the TV show, Brett and Bark would do all they could not to work. They were gamblers. They were schemers. They were wily guys who would try to scam their way into money. Um, They weren't gunfighters, unless they had to be. It was all about uh, the easiest way to make a buck. And so another quote. Well, as my old pappy used to say, a man does what he has to do if he can't get out of it. So you have different sides of the spectrum of, of advice. And there's more that I could quote but didn't seem appropriate for a sermon. Anyway, um, Dad sayings, dad jokes, we call them now, <clears throat> are a part of our memories and they're part of our cultural conversation. That's all well and good. But what can be really poignant and even more memorable? And this, I think, happens rarely because men are usually, we use less words than women, we don't talk as often. We all know that that's true. When a dad says something about his kids, it's a rare 
speech, but it's almost always poignant and beautiful if, if that father is of any kind of worth at all. It's one of the point, most poignant and beautiful things you can hear a father say a compliment or, or something <coughs> kind or good said about one of their children. And so what we have in, in Hebrews 1, here in these verses before us, <coughs> all these quotes from the Old Testament, there are no dad sayings here like Pappy in the Maverick show. There are no you know, little anecdotes or words of wisdom that we might have received from our earthly fathers. But here we have an incredible example. And if you step back and, and reflect on it and think on it a little bit, an incredibly poignant and beautiful example of a father talking about his son. And what he says is incredible <coughs> and beautiful, amazing and wonderful. Even more so because now we have the divine father speaking to the divine son. And the author pulls these sayings of the son to the, fa- uh, the father to the son and uses them to validate the claims that he's made in the first four verses of this chapter. Again, seven quotes from the Old Testament where the, that the author finds and then uses where the father is talking about the son all to show and to reinforce the argument <coughs> that the son is superior to angels and therefore the word spoken by the son is superior than any word spoken by any angelic being and should be listened to. So what I want to do this morning is simply walk through how the Son is shown to be superior in this passage and then talk a little bit at the end about what I think is the significance of the Father talking to the Son in this passage and how it's portrayed. So a little bit of technical introduction. We'll talk about how (coughs) the Son is shown to be superior and then I want to examine this idea of the Father talking to the Son in this passage. So I said before, the author of Hebrews is a masterful writer. This is literary artistry uh, placed before us. And right after making his point, his exhortation, that God has spoken through his Son in these last days, The Son has certain qualities and characteristics that make him superior to angels and therefore should be listened to, as he's going to get to in chapter 2. Now the author is going to take a break from his exhortation and give us an explanation. Remember we talked about exhortation, explanation. Certain declarations the writer makes, and then he defends them in in this uh, sermon letter. Now he's going to go and marshal all the data that he, or the seven key data points that he wants to use to validate his claim about the Son. He has a better name, and he is superior to the angels. A little side side thought here. Why the focus on angels? Why the focus on the Son's superiority to the angels? There's various thoughts that the scholars put forth. Um, and I think actually they all have some basis in, uh, in reality. One idea is that the author here is dealing with the same issue that Paul is dealing with when he writes to the church in Colossae. That's why I wanted to read that this morning. There in, in that letter we see 
Paul dealing with uh, an early group of believers who are caught up in, in a kind of angel worship or worship of spiritual beings. It's, it's a Gnostic kind of heresy where the spiritual is seen as superior to the physical. And especially the Colossians got, up in, got caught up in angel worship or spirit worship or, or this kind of thing. And so Paul writes his letter to the Colossians in part to, to address that error and, and to reverse it, to show the superiority of Christ who made these principalities and powers and so on and so forth. That's one option of what's going on here, and I think that has validity because we know Gnosticism didn't just exist in Colossae. The second, and this is maybe a little bit more relevant to this book since it is the, the letter to the Hebrews, is, is we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that among that community there had developed a kind of, of teaching, a kind of expectation about the end times where they saw two messiahs coming. One a priestly messiah and one a, a royal kingly messiah. And that the royal messiah would be subject to and had to obey the priestly messiah. But in all this weird stuff about the end times, they also had this idea that both of these messiahs owed their allegiance to and were obedient to the archangel Michael. This is a, one of the thoughts that was circling around Jewish thought, especially esoteric, theological Jewish uh, believers in the time of of the New Testament. They got these ideas from Daniel 10 and 12, where Daniel writes about the archangel Michael being involved uh, in the the revelations that he received. So here, the author would be saying, Michael and all the angels are subject to the Messiah. And the Messiah is not a priest over here and a king over here, but a priest-king. And in fact, he is the very son of God. So the author is dealing with probably a couple different strains of erroneous thought in the early church. And you might think, well, why were angels such a big deal in people's lives back then? And I would just remind us of the recent obsession within the last 10 or 15 years that we had here in our country over angels. The books that were written, the claims of angel visitations, the TV show, Touched by an Angel, and similar kinds of things. It's easy to get sucked into this kind of deviant thinking. One of the things we can learn from Hebrews is not to be distracted uh, by the servant, uh, but remember who the master is and worship the master instead. All right, so the author quotes seven Old Testament passages that show that Jesus, the Son, is superior to angels. Now, there's another interesting thing going on in these seven quotes, and here's part of the literary artistry of this writer. In the seven quotes, there are four themes from verses 1 to 4 that are repeated. One is that the Son is God's heir. The second is the Son is creator. The third is the Son as God himself, who is glorious and unchanging. And the fourth is the idea of the Son being at the right hand of the Father. Four characteristics, four themes that are repeated in these seven uh, quotes. Now, what's also interesting about the seven quotes is they show the 
superiority. I'm going to say that word right by the time I'm done. (laughs) They show the superiority of the Son over angels in three different ways. He's superior because he is the Son and is worshipped by angels. He's superior because he is God, the unchangeable creator. And he's superior because he rules as God. So four characteristics that are repeated, and then four or three ways in which the Son is shown to be superior. Four plus three equals seven. Again, this is probably not an accident. This is an example of the, uh, the excellent craft of this writer and how he pulls things together. What I want to look at are those three ways in which the Son is shown to be superior to angels. The first is in verses 5 and 6. Here we have the Son as the Son, God's heir, God's very own Son, and the one to whom angels are called upon to give worship. And so the author quotes first from Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. He then quotes from 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. This is the passage where David has asked God uh, to build a temple, and God says, no, I'm going to build your house. In fact, I'm going to give you a son who will reign on your throne forever. And he says in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is the Messiah, the Messiah. Not two Messiahs, one Messiah. And then a quote that's taken from Deuteronomy 32:43, and also we find the idea in Psalm 97, verse 7. <clears throat> the command that all the angels of God should worship the Son. So here is this Son, the one promised to David, the one Messiah, the one King to rule forever, but also God's Son, begotten by Him. As an aside, when was the Son Begotten, there's a lot of debate about this. Some of the authors, to try to protect the eternal nature of the Son, say, well, this is referring to an eternal begotting. begetting. Um, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. But here I think this is more tied to the incarnation itself. Um, today I have begotten you. And the idea that Paul writes about in, in Romans 1, verse 4, where even the resurrection itself is seen as evidence that the Son is begotten by the Father. So his earthly work is in mind here. This is the Son who came, as it says in the earlier verses, to make purification for sins. That incarnate Son who did the work of the Messiah to bring God's people to himself. So the Son is something the angels are not, and his coming is something that the angels are supposed to, to worship. And you don't worship what is inferior to yourself. The angels worship the superior Son. Let all the angels of God worship Him. And so we have the the couple Christmas carols that we're singing this morning. Even the angels of God worship this Son. So that's the first idea. He's superior because He's the Son and they owe Him their worship. The second idea is he's superior just because he's God himself. 
He does not change. He is the God who created all things. In contrast, angels, though powerful, have a beginning and their power is somewhat fleeting. We see this again in in a couple different quotes. First, uh, a quote about the angels themselves in verse 7, taken from Psalm 104, verse 4. God makes his angels winds. He makes his ministers a flame of fire. There we have the idea that, first of all, that angels are created beings. They're not eternal. They have a beginning. But also, if you think about the nature of wind and the nature of fire, powerful, but a little bit fleeting. Wind comes and goes. Fire burns out. Angels are compared to these very powerful elements, but at the same time, uh, they're limited. And then the author follows with a quote about the sun from Psalm 45, verses 5 and 6. Here the sun occupies an eternal throne. His scepter is uprightness, righteousness. The hymn that we sang changes uprightness to, to sinlessness, to draw us to the sinless nature of Christ. The Son loves righteousness and is therefore anointed with gladness, not known by any other living person. So the Son rules on an eternal throne while the angels, angels minister. The Son is eternal while the angels are created beings. And then on top of that, in verses 10 to 12, quoting from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, we have this idea of the Son as the Creator who never changes, who laid the foundation of the earth and made the heavens themselves. Everything else is like a garment that wears out. I had to throw out another pair of pants this week because it got holes in it from being worn out. Garments wear out. God does not. The Creator endures and remains. And while they wear out like a garment, while they roll up uh, and are changed... He is never changed. He is the same, and his years have no end. The angels did not create. The angels are not eternal. They are limited, finite beings, as powerful as they are. So, the Son is different from the angels again. He is God himself. And then finally, the idea that's, I think, implied in some of the earlier passages or verses here in verses 13 and 14, that the Son himself, who is God, rules over everything, while the angels are servants sent by the the ruler, God the Son, to serve him and to serve his servants. The quote here is from Psalm 110, verse 1, the most quoted part of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, remember what we talked about last week. The Son came down to make purification for sin. And all that that entails of his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father, how he dealt with sin, removed the guilt, removed the stain, gives us his perfect obedience in exchange by grace and through faith. He has accomplished his work. He's made purification for sin. He ascends into heaven. He sits down. That's the power of a ruler. 
He sits while other people do his business. <laughs> he gives commands and other people follow them. That's a powerful ruler, a ruler who sits and rests while others do his work. <clears throat> this is the image of Christ that is laid before us in contrast to the angels in verse 14 who are ministering spirits sent by God, sent by that ruler on the throne. And then the amazing thing, sent for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That's us. That's you and me, all who repent and believe in Christ. Angels serve us. So if God is superior to us, and angels serve us, certainly God is superior to angels. They're not to be worshipped. The Son is to be worshipped. They're not God. The Son is God. Any worship of angelic beings is foolish. It's sinful. It robs God of the worship that he is due. All this a part of the argument that the author here is making. How much worse then, if we're not to worship the angels of God, would be the worship of angels who are fallen? And I think we see this in some of the false religions around the world. Fallen angels tempting people into utterly rebellious and foolish worship. Again, look to Colossians for Paul's instruction on that. So the Son is superior in those three ways to angels. The author is going to make the argument that therefore we should listen to him and obey him as the theme of the rest of this letter. But what's fascinating to me about this passage and unfortunately, <clears throat> didn't see a lot about it in the commentaries I looked at, and yet it's so striking to me. Uh, I guess I'm just weird. But what's so striking is each of these quotes isn't the author saying, well, as Scripture says, or as the Word says, but he repeatedly makes the point, he said. That's a personal pronoun. He, God, the Father, the Father said these things. He's not just quoting passages, he's quoting God himself in a very particular way, and I think on purpose. I think it's significant. <clears throat> he's reinforcing, first of all, the idea that God himself, who spoke before, as he said, through the prophets, is now speaking about his Son, and that son is the one through whom he's going to speak in these last days. The father said these things about his son. He said them through the prophets in the past. In other words, it's, it's no lesser authority than God himself who is making these claims about Jesus. God himself is saying, not some prophet. This isn't Elijah saying this or Daniel saying this, or Moses saying this, or David saying this, in a very different way than other parts of Scripture. The author is saying, the Father is saying <clears throat> that Jesus is his Son, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the heir of all things, that Jesus is the promised Son of David, eternally sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, that Jesus created all things, that Jesus dealt completely with sin, that Jesus is his very own son, the one that kings must kiss or feel his wrath. 
that Jesus is to be worshipped. And I, I, I reflect on that and I think, is there, is there a better apologetic anywhere in Scripture for the divinity of Jesus and, and who he is as the God-man who came for our salvation? Go back and run through the Nicene Creed that's in your bulletin. The things that are said in the Nicene Creed about the Son, you can find almost all of them in this first chapter of, of Hebrews. And what the author is saying is, I'm not saying this about Jesus. Paul didn't say this about Jesus. Peter didn't say this about Jesus. Elijah didn't say this about Jesus. God himself, the Father, said this about him. He said this. I think that's just incredibly, incredibly powerful. And therefore, there's this implied statement or, 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 or argument going on. If you believed when the, when the Father spoke to the prophets, believe him now when he's speaking about his Son. You believe what God said? Well, here it is about his very own Son. And so that leads me to, to the to the thought that this should give us incredible confidence in our faith and, and incredible assurance that these things are, th- are true. <clears throat> Doubt is one of those things that, that creeps into all of our minds from time to time. But that God said these things, he said this, takes it to another level of assurance, at least for me, a greater degree of confidence that our doubts can be answered, that Jesus really did live, that he really did the things that he did, that he did them to make purification for sins, removing the consequences of sin for us, so that we can be right with God, so that the guilt and stain can be gone and the debt of perfect obedience paid. That really did happen. It's really true, because the Father says that it's true. Not some prophet or preacher or apostle somewhere. God speaks. That's powerful. That's incredibly powerful to me. It's true because God said so. And so in a very real way, the God who spoke through the prophets is now speaking to us directly in these verses about his son. And what he says is glorious. It's the most wonderful testimony of a father about a child that I think you can find anywhere. Not just some fantasy, but real and sure and certain. Now the author again is going to go on and tell us more next week, and we'll see this, God willing, next week, that because of this, (laughs) how does he open chapter 2? Pay attention. Pay attention to what you've heard. And don't fall away. Receive the Son. Believe in Him and the salvation that He offers. And then secondly, hold on to it. Don't let go. Don't get lazy. Don't get complacent. Don't drift away from this sure anchor for your soul. Don't let go. God is speaking through His Son. Listen, pay attention, and cling to it as if your very life depended upon it. And then He's going to go on to argue that because of this we should live like followers of God, live like believers in Jesus Christ. And so that's the 
thought I would leave us with this morning. If the Father has said these things, with confidence, believe in Jesus and embrace and kiss the Son. And then with the Son, be anointed by God with the oil of gladness. What a beautiful picture that is. Because there is joy and there is happiness and there is gladness in Jesus beyond anything that this world or the spirits of this world can imagine or offer to us. There is no better king and priest and prophet and sacrifice and Messiah than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What a powerful truth that is. Let me pray for us. God, our Father in heaven, we do, as always, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you especially for what you have told us this morning about your very own Son. What a beautiful portrait that is, what beautiful truths they are. And as we think about them and meditate upon them and consider them in in the days and weeks to come, uh, that you would uh, fill our hearts with joy and gladness and increase our faith and uh, deepen our devotion to Christ our Savior. This is not possible by our own efforts or striving. So again, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be powerfully dwelling among us, to open your word to us, and to equip us, to empower us, to understand your word and to live it out and apply it in our lives. All of this we ask in the precious, wonderful, superior name of Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen.